You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. To Terra Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Elizabeth Dowdell. And I'm Andrea Miller. And I'm Sonic Patel. We are your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news and stories. We like to start every episode by acknowledging that Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, a campus and community recording studio located in Edmonton, Alberta. We are situated on Treaty 6, the historic and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other first people that live and gather here. This week, we will be discussing the relationship between the environment and our emotions. Indigenous people across Canada have a long and often spiritual relationship to the land they have lived on for generations. As you listen to this episode, we invite you to consider how the protection or degradation of the environment affects the physical, mental, and emotional health of Indigenous peoples and yourself. On our episode today, we're talking about climate grief, a term that has increasingly entered the public awareness. We'll take a look at what climate grief is, how it can manifest, and what we can do to cope with it. Last October, the City of Edmonton hosted an event called Change for Climate Talks, which featured local entrepreneurs and other changemakers exploring different climate actions happening in the city. Tara Informers, Sonic Patel, and Elizabeth Dowdell attended those talks, and have been sharing the content, along with personal reflections, in episodes over the past few months. One of those talks features speakers Sarah Connor and Michael James from Rebel Life, sharing their perspective on what climate grief is and what we can do about it. So, this is May 30th, 2019. It's a day most of us probably remember. Smoke from the wildfires in northern Alberta swept into the Edmonton area and blanketed our city in smoke for almost 48 hours. NASA described this as part of an unprecedented fire season. Three times more fires than the five previous years combined. This is what ecological crisis looks like. That was a clip from Sarah and Michael's Rebel Life presentation. We'll be using a few of these clips to discuss climate grief, some of the opportunities Rebel Life suggests for coping with climate grief, and what we felt was missing or maybe glossed over in the presentation. But before we get to that, let's chat about what exactly climate grief is. Solastalgia is a recently coined term that describes the emotional and existential distress caused by climate and ecological change. The term has sometimes been described as feeling homesick or mourning for a natural place or environmental quality that no longer exists. In simple terms, climate grief, like solastalgia, is a psychological response to environmental loss. In 2017, the American Psychology Association published a position paper looking at the impacts of climate change on emotional health. In it, they provide a well-researched summary of work done on climate grief up to this point. The report discusses the ways that climate change has and will have significant impacts on mental health. Extreme weather, changing climate patterns, Loss and destruction of food, water, and infrastructure, and rising air pollution can all affect mental health. Negative impacts to mental well-being can lead to deterioration in social relationships and cause physical health issues like sleep disorders. Climate grief may manifest as feelings of fear, hopelessness, or anxiety. 
These feelings may be expressed through higher rates of aggression and violence, substance abuse, shock, post-traumatic stress disorder, compounded stress, depression, mental health emergencies, increased feelings of helplessness, hopelessness, and intense loss. The report also states climate grief can create an increased sense of fatalism or a belief that climate change is inevitable. Uh, Research looking at the relationship between the environment and mental health is not new, and academic papers have identified substantial emotional impacts of disasters. A study of the emotional impacts of Hurricane Katrina on residents of New Orleans found that rates of suicide and suicidal ideation more than doubled following the disaster. Over 15% of residents experienced post-traumatic stress disorder and nearly half experienced anxiety and depression. As climate change worsens the incidence, magnitude, and risk of major environmental disasters, we can expect to see increasing rates of individual mental health crises and stress on the mental health system. Climate grief isn't restricted to experiencing or worrying about being at risk of extreme weather events. Media is increasingly reporting on environmental hazards and harm, and even just learning about negative impacts on humans and our environment can affect our mental health. Climate grief is a relatively newly acknowledged phenomenon and still not fully understood or accepted by the general public. Some people may consider climate grief to be just complaining, but research increasingly demonstrates the validity of the impact people experience through climate grief. Like the first stage of the five-stage grief model, climate grief can emerge as denial of the occurrence, speed, and magnitude of climate change. Denial is an understandable response to the immense threat of climate change, but it challenges our ability to respond and mitigate this threat. Inaction at a global scale leads to the further cementing of the climate crisis, creating a cycle of climate grief. Now, climate grief doesn't affect all people equally. Those people highly engaged in climate issues are more likely to be exposed to climate grief. This means people like environmental scientists, students, activists, and people that are exposed to climate change impacts are the most likely to develop climate grief. Environmental scientists are often the most aware of the environmental impacts of climate change, like species loss. Indigenous communities are also at a unique risk of climate grief through a worldview and identity often closely connected to the environment. Several psychologists and psychotherapists note that climate grief is especially prevalent among young people, likely because younger people will disproportionately face those consequences of climate change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change also notes that women might be disproportionately affected by climate change due to their additional roles and duties as caregivers and maintainers of the household. Climate change impacts like hazards and displacement can result in increased mental health impacts on women. With the risk of climate grief rising, lots of research is turning to understanding how we can respond to and reduce the impacts of climate grief. Here's what Sarah Connor and Michael James discuss in their presentation. As coaches and catalysts, we want to suggest that there are a few proven ways to take steps to help us move forward and to help us accept the mess that we're in, to help us feel it and begin to change and then increase resilience in ways that allow us to stop being overwhelmed by the problem and start to become one of the solutions. We could spend hours talking about the techniques we use with our clients and in workshops, but in this short little time, what we want to do is introduce a basic model. So resilience can often be defined as the ability to quickly recover from difficulties and challenges, so what some call bouncing back. But it's also the ability and necessity to adapt 
and advance to states beyond just the status quo. And here's the good news. These skills can be learned and developed. But we need to be proactive about it. We can't just wait for adversity or the next major crisis to hit. One of the very first things we learned studying resiliency and change is that in order for people to overcome the challenges of anxiety and grief, they have to have direction. And this begins by knowing your purpose. To know what gives us meaning and what drives us, we have to know our why, our personal why. Do we want to live, do we want to be famous? Do we want to have a high stress, high paying job? Or do we actually want the things that this brings us? Do we want recognition, security, and do we want connection? Working to learn what truly matters to us allows us to differentiate what we need from how we get it. And then through doing this, we can explore new ways of changing how we get what we need and creating a meaningful life. The thing I like that they talk about with, with resilience is something that like resilience research has often sort of done a poor job with, which is understanding that things are always changing and um, entities are dynamic. And a lot of resilience is based off of this idea of equilibrium, that we're at this steady state and then something shocks us and we change from that. And resilience is how quickly or how efficiently we can get back to that equilibrium state. But the problem with that is that like not, not a lot of things are really ever at a steady state. And especially as people, we're sort of constantly changing and growing. And part of being resilient is also being able to adapt and change. And that's something that we all do when we face crisis. I like that. And I think that's like useful for thinking about climate change and coping with climate grief. And that's something that I definitely personally take from this and take into like my day-to-day way of thinking about climate change, that like systems are changing, the way we operate as a society is changing. So many of those systems, the way they function needs to fundamentally shift. And so that's not coming back to the steady state we were in. That to me is the idea of resilience, of finding a new state and becoming sort of yeah. steady within within a set of extremes, I guess, um, that are, you know, livable, that kind of climate livable future um, is not the, the equilibrium we're at now. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's, I think, where we can sort of start to pick apart that concept of resilience. This is something that we've talked about and critiqued, I feel like, in some of our courses and discussions, just that it does place onus on the individual to just keep taking things on and to react appropriately and to just keep going and you know keep pushing through rather than calling into questions some of those things that we have to be resilient to and those those systems that we we have to actually challenge yeah i think you guys both talk about this idea that like but like resilience capacity is often determined by so many like external factors that it's a lot more difficult than just figuring out what makes you resilient. But Liz, like you talked about, not everyone has the financial capacity to be resilient to a hazard. And that's something that people can't just change by saying, oh, well, climate change is getting worse. Maybe I'll just get a better job. Yeah, not realistic <laughs> and not feasible. <laughs> or in, in a similar vein, you know, if you're you're the mother of young children and your home is hit by by a natural disaster, your emotional capacity is stretched quite a bit further than if you were sort of, you know, a renter who was in a place for a couple of couple of weeks and you're planning on moving anyways. 
Like there's all these external forces that make you more or less resilient. And this idea of like making ourselves more resilient, there's almost an implication that like the, it's your responsibility. And in a lot of ways, it that's somewhat taken from you. And so, yeah, part of trying to make yourself more resilient is sort of understand what is it about you and your life that sort of puts you in those risky situations and is that worth it for you? And I think that also gets around to this idea of purpose and what that means. But yeah, do you feel like you're like you're living your purpose? Okay, I'll go into this. I had a real problem with the way that they talk about purpose um, in the talk and that's I think it's a really simplified idea of like who are we and what do you care about and what do you do? And I think we all have an incredible amount of purposes, you know, we're It's more nuanced than yeah, that for sure. We're students and we're researchers and we're we're journalists at Terra Informa and we're daughters and sons and friends and you know we're consumers and those aren't all equally weighted even at any given time in our in our lives. Yeah, I think those are valid criticisms. I, like, I do see value in a personal narrative. And I think, you know, when you talk about how there are so many narratives and there are so many things going on, understanding your position or your narrative towards, you know, a, a large-scale phenomenon like climate change can be a tool to provide some clarity and to sort of simplify all of that that's going on in the background, that kind of chaos and static and noise. Oh, no, I used the disposable cup today. I had my mugs in the office. Uh, uh, I had to take a drive and uh, I got a flight coming out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's a way to to calm some of that. And I think it has value there. It's not something I've done. It's not a practice I've put myself through, but I can see the the value in it. But I agree that it is, you know, we are more nuanced humans than that. We are more complex humans than that. But in, you know, if climate change is causing climate grief and you are anxious as heck about it, understanding yourself in relation to it as an individual and then as a as part of a community and a collective, I think is a, is a valuable and beneficial. Knowledge of our purpose is personal. <laughs> so when it comes to self-care, there's a few areas to address first, and that's nutrition, exercise, and sleep. For nutrition, this means unlinking ourselves from toxic and wasteful food systems. So switching to a more plant-based diet and buying in-season, organic, local produce. And you've seen some great examples of that today. It also means eating healthier and more nutrient-dense foods. Seems, again, it seems obvious. But we actually need that to increase our mental flexibility and our adaptability. Exercise, obvious health benefits. But when it comes to resiliency, it actually increases our mental performance and our ability to learn. And I can bet that every single one of you has experienced the effects from lack of sleep. So how many of you have noticed that you make more mistakes? Yeah. (laughs) And how many of you get irritable or grouchy? (laughs) And what about your decreased ability to cope with stress? So what some of you may or may not know is that these effects over time actually compound in the body, the brain, and on your performance. So there's another area of self-care, and that's regulating your emotions. Keeping your composure in your calm and stressful situations, big and small, in your life, so that you can save your energy for what's really important. And we also need to develop the awareness of our instinctual and habitual brain patterns, like our fight-or-flight response. 
and learn how to better manage those behaviors and reactions. We also need grounding practices, like gratitude and mindfulness. And those areas become the fuel for us to keep fighting. So what do we think? Is this uh, good advice for dealing with climate grief? The climate anxieties that I feel are maybe on such a bigger scale. You know, when I'm well rested and I've eaten well and I've burned off anxious energy, I can focus, I can do the things that I need to do in my day to day. They don't feel overwhelming. They don't feel insurmountable. They don't create anxiety. I feel a capacity. But in terms of climate change, I I don't know if that's a, a false sense of security when you might feel okay or feel better or feel like you've you know, let that anxiety go, it doesn't necessarily change that particular issue. So it's not something you can as an individual address. So yeah, I think there's a little bit more complexity there, maybe with nutrition, exercise, and sleep for dealing with climate grief. But as regular mental health, emotional health, um, regulating exercises or practices, yeah, of course. (laughs) I think what I do feel like when I am well rested and you know have been like eating healthier is that I can just deal with it better I'm like less likely to sort of become completely overwhelmed to the point of like paralysis or Mm -hmm. you know become very emotional um about it and sort of yeah so I think I think think yourself is just a way to sort of be able to handle that anxiety a little bit better yeah I certainly don't think it's going to cause it to to be diminished the same way I think, you know, other mental health issues don't sort of go away as we take care of ourselves better. But I think it leaves us in a better place to be able to handle it. There's another sort of quote from this conversation, from this um, step two, nutrition, exercise, and sleep, which is about how it's important to to meet these three sort of self-care standards to regulate our emotions, so we can regulate our emotions and conserve energy for what is important. So it's a line that maybe goes under the radar, but do you think that speaks to this bigger collective work that needs to be done, this work of system dismantling? And if you're not eating well and you're not sleeping well and you're not exercising, you're going to get that burnout. You're never going to be able to be part of organizing or collective action or have the space, you know, even the bandwidth or the mental capacity to think about being a part of that system change. The last kind of important thing I want to talk about with this idea of like regulating our emotions gets to this idea of sort of climate discussions. And, you know, I often get fairly emotional when I, you know, read statements or hear or a couple of times I've interacted with people who aren't on the same page with me about climate action. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can often be like a really emotionally laden argument and it gets around to unproductive things like name calling and like bad debate tactics and just things that aren't conducive to to collective action. But at some point, we will have to engage in an effective discussion with people who have different ideas about climate action. And, you know, that in itself, I think, is a huge challenge is how do you sort of dissociate yourself from really intense emotions when you have to talk to climate change deniers or more likely talk to people who understand it's happening, but don't feel the need for climate action. And I find that to be very difficult. And I think that's probably the place where I need to do more to regulate my emotions. I hadn't thought of that. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like one of the worst feelings is 
not being able to articulate your argument effectively or feeling discredited in those conversations with somebody when you feel the pressure to represent, I guess, this argument in air quotes, but this like factual phenomenon of climate change that, yeah, feeling the pressure to represent that accurately and to represent that community accurately in the face of people who are doing everything they can to discredit you. And when an emotional response comes up in that scenario and you're not able to to make your point, um, I feel like that's incredibly frustrating. Practicing being truly present with our friends and family and getting outside to connect with the natural world and, and build our abilities to, to have healthy patterns. These things seem like simple suggestions, but they're absolutely essential to building resilience. And making a plan. So this is where you get to design your life. You get to take control, create a transition plan that's guided by your purpose and based on principles of sustainability. How are you going to accomplish your purpose and take care of yourself? How are you going to contribute and connect to your community? To answer those questions, you'll need a plan for who to spend your time with, where to expend your energy, and how to sustain your life in a way that positively impacts the world. With creativity and innovative problem solving, that plan will help you anticipate challenges, reflect on your mistakes, and see opportunities in change. What is a plan without committed action? As many experienced coaches and change experts will tell you, the number one thing that allows us to take greater control of our life and to overcome the challenges is decision. It is not the desire to do better, it is not the intention to change, but the decision to act that allows us to leap from one way of existence to a new mode of being. Neuroscience tells us that the best way to build new habits and sustainable habits is to do so incrementally, small actions con consistently. We need to implement our plan by acting consistently to anchor new behaviors. Resiliency increases when our best strategies for coping and adaptation become habit. So decide, follow your plan, and do the work. Another way to cope with eco-grief is by getting involved in community initiatives and activism. Large-scale social movements do not happen overnight, but they do depend on bold and daring individuals like Greta Thunberg, the thousands in Extinction Rebellion, and you guys, joining together to fight for truth, justice, and change. So does anyone have a climate grief support network? I'm looking at mine. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. For I, listeners at home, I'm looking into a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, real talk, though, I think our graduate cohort is it. Like, we, we see each other every single day, and we are exposed to a lot of the same information. We read a lot of the same stuff. We have a lot of the same conversations. I think naturally, you all have become... My support network, rather whether that's a climate-related support network or a regular <laughs> support network, it's to be determined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think again, like those are they're difficult things to dissociate almost. Yeah, like that's... we talked about like how 
ubiquitous climate climate action is in our day-to-day lives. I mean, I don't dispute that that this cohort, the this group of people that you guys are my like daily support network, but like nowhere do we sit down and have a conversation about how climate grief is impacting us today or about how the climate news is impacting us today. So like those are conversations I don't often have with my closest peers or my closest friends or people who I would consider my support network because they are all on the same page and it's not one of those joyful or positive or exciting things to talk about right how have my support networks helped with climate grief well I mean I don't have a climate grief support network but it's something that is building and are starting to exist and starting to be a place that is in the public and is available and is like a group you can go to so like I've been creeping the Edmonton Eco Grief Mm -hmm. group for a while and I'm like oh sorry that meeting time isn't great for me maybe I'll go next time so I, I think your regular support network for your day-to-day life, your friends, your family, may be your climate grief network, but you might need a different network or you might need to really um, be intentional about creating that space with people who are your day-to-day. I just wanted to just touch on this idea that I also felt was somewhat conflicting in the presentation, and that's you know, creating a plan for climate action and how I, I think in some ways that doesn't necessarily make it make climate grief a little bit easier to cope with. I think part of that is, you know, if you've decided that you want to be a climate action proponent, if you want to sort of fight to deal with this crisis, you are essentially saying that I am going to expose myself to more climate crisis information and I'm going to put myself at greater risk of feeling intense emotions of climate grief. But that's something that I'm willing to, to do as part of that process. I think that also goes back to this idea of purpose that, you know, I'd love to not read as much as I do about climate change impacts. I'd love to not have that be such a big part of my life. And I hate that, like, I have to structure huge parts of my action and identity around a crisis. But on the other side, I would rather be doing this than not, if that makes sense. Like, I... I having learned what I know about the climate crisis, I I want to be part of a change and I want to be part of action. And mm-hmm. yeah, part of that means that I unfortunately do have to keep myself informed on climate action. Part of that means I have to read opinions that infuriate me to understand how to have proper discussions about it. And that's that's part of a trade-off that comes with purpose. But I think the way climate action is presented in this presentation makes it feel like this is the solution to the grief that you're feeling is to like to do something about it, which I agree with. But I think in a different way, it also puts you at exposure of feeling that grief even more strongly. We're living in crisis. There's denial or there's living with the crisis. And being in denial just puts off when you're going to have to accept the fact that you're living in a time of crisis. Uh, so I think it's important to get ahead of that get in on that early and you know build these kind of habits and capacities to be able to survive in like our climate change now and our climate change future which will be worse Mm -hmm. i think that also speaks to sarah's point about practicing gratitude and you know we've we acknowledge that we wouldn't really want to be doing anything else we we don't really want to be on the other side of this debate we've chosen our path we've chosen our purpose so 
taking that time to reflect and think about why we are grateful to live when we do and in, in this time that we do and what is what is it about our purpose that that we can be grateful for is something that I'm going to do when I get home later. All right. Well, with that note on gratitude, I would say that's all the time we have for this week. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. If you're experiencing climate grief, please reach out for support to your friends, to your family, maybe to your local climate grief support group. Uh, We know this is a difficult subject for many people, and we hope that none of you are going through it alone. Um, We want to thank you for hearing our stories and for staying informed on environmental news, even if it feels like it gets harder every day to do that. This has been Elizabeth Dowdell. Sonic Patel. And Andrea Miller. Hoping that every one of you takes care of yourself and takes care of others. Thanks for listening. Thank you.